Well, as you can see from the blackboard, we are coming back this morning to the study of the subject of the covenants. And uh, we began it uh, basically endeavoring to understand what people talk about when they talk about covenant theology. And the interesting thing at that, on that point is that not everybody agrees on what they're talking about when they speak of covenant theology. I think one of the things I get from people that have run in circles where we talk about a covenant God, a covenant keeping, covenant making God, and we speak about a covenant of redemption or the covenant of works or the covenant of grace, is that it's kind of an elusive concept. It's something that not everybody understands and a lot of times it ministers more confusion than clarity. And I think one of the reasons for that is simply that it's, it's, it's a human construct. At least the, the covenant theology that we find in the uh, Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession in chapter 7, it's a theological idea which has its use in theological discussions as it's used to support other teachings of scripture. And I think when they derived this teaching in the 17th century, it was to support and to illuminate, and perhaps in a sense to illustrate, uh, the doctrine of the decree that came under attack through what was called Arminianism in the um, Dutch churches. And there was a group of theologians that responded. They responded with the covenant of, of the canons of Dort to answer the claims of the Arminians. And then out of that same institution where much of that discussion was held, the University of Leiden came these teachers who developed what was called covenant theology. The first book on the subject, the full book, was written by a man named Johannes um, Cosigius, or the pronunciation differs from who you, you talk to. But, um, and then it worked its way into the Reformed churches through one of, the, one of Cosigius' teachers in the University of Leiden was a man named William Ames, who was one of the chief um, Puritans and a Puritan teacher. And when they were exiled from England, he went to Holland. He taught in the University of Leiden, influenced the whole generation of Dutch scholars, and influenced the Puritans. So when the 1644, when the Westminster Confession of Faith was framed, it was the influence of Ames and those who were his students that came to bear in the statement of chapter 7 on the covenants. And um, the Baptist picked it up from there. Now it's interesting, the, uh, Pastor Johnston said to me that he was under the impression that the Baptists were kind of reticent about even adopting it. There was some controversy over the matter. I mean to go back and ask him what his source was for that, but that was something that was in his study, in his reading. He said he had come across, which I found more than interesting. And one of the reasons that they were hesitant to receive it was because the Baptists were saying, this is rather new. This is something our fathers had not been teaching. It's not in the Belgian Confession, as we saw, as we said. I didn't actually show it to you, but I can take the Belgian Confession and show you. It doesn't. It's not there. It's not in the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a mention of the covenant with Abraham, but not the covenant of grace, as the um, Westminster Confession teaches it. it not the, a, a, a full-orbed covenant theology. Not even there in seed form. Um, some people think maybe it's there in seed form, and they try to make an argument for, uh, for it. But our fathers didn't know about it. The 17th century came upon it for the purposes of supporting other teachings. And that's what we find happening today, is that people are saying, well, we have to hold to this doctrine of the covenants to support, fill it in, infant baptism, to support believers' baptism. So we have our own 1689 federalism to, to support our point of view. And so they're using a doctrine that's not really in the Bible referring to that specific thing that they want to support and illuminate, um, but they're using it as a theological construct. I'm not against theological constructs. They have their use. They're helpful in discussion. Um, but to say, if you don't hold this, you are not faithful to uh, a Baptist confession or a Presbyterian confession or that you're not Reformed or you're not this or you're not that is absurd in my, in my estimation. That's something that we cannot be saying. And one of the problems that in this whole, spending so much time talking about these, these covenants, we're not really exploring what the scripture is teaching on the subject. Now, one of the things that happened yesterday at our picnic is we had a, a brother from uh, New Jersey, Bob Monaco, with us. And Bob's walked in our circles and Reformed Baptist churches and several of them in the past. And so we got into a discussion about covenants yesterday hot on my mind, I was also on his mind, and he wanted to talk about it. And um, he brought up something that I, I just wanted to share with you before we go into what's before us this morning. Uh, 
And that is, he's, he, he said he was under one teacher, one ministry, that said that the Garden of Eden could not have comprised a covenantal relationship because covenants demand the shedding of blood. There's a teacher by the name of O. Palmer Robertson who wrote a book called The Christ of the Covenants. And O. Palmer Robertson defined a, a, a covenant as a, an oath-sworn pledge sealed with blood. So you have to have blood in order to have a covenant. And that's its own story. But uh, he had his t- teacher who said it's not a covenant because blood is absent in the Garden of Eden, at least before the fall. You might say after the fall, God slew uh, the, a beast in order to give him uh, uh, to make uh, coverings for him. But besides that, there's no shedding of blood prior to sin. Um, but then he went to another church where another teacher was teaching, and he said, well, a pox on your house for teaching such a thing, that the Bible clearly teaches that the relationship was a covenant, and his argument came from Hosea 6 and verse 7. And that's something that I really should have brought to your attention. Because you're going to, you're going to encounter this. If, you, if you're among the school of covenant theologians that talk about this, they're going to point you to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7. I just want to turn you there. And I'm doing this for the sake of drawing a distinction between how Scripture sometimes sound to, sounds to our ears Sometimes we think uh, Scripture's teaching something because we've learned, we've heard all this stuff in our circles about the covenant of works. So we come to Hosea 6-7, and with that in our mind, it, this sounds like something like a covenant in the Garden of Eden. Because it says in uh, chapter 6 and verse 7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so, the historic way in which Reformed people would take this verse is, this is speaking like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Sinned against God's will, and hence he transgressed the covenant God made with him. Therefore, it was a covenantal relationship in the Garden of Eden. There's just a couple of problems with that. And that is that the name Adam, or the word Adam in the Hebrew, can refer to things other than the person of Adam. It can refer to, first of all, the word itself just means uh, clay from the ground. God made him dust from the ground. It's, it's red dirt <laughs> that God made man from. Uh, Edom uh, is the name that's given to Esau because Esau's name meant red. Adam, Edom, comes really from the same root. Of, it's red dirt. It's red clay. And um, it can refer to the individual in the Garden of Eden that's spoken of in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Or it can refer to humanity because he made man dust from the ground and Adam becomes a word for man or mankind or humankind. Men and women collectively are Adam. So it could be just mankind and it could be just stating like humanity, like mankind in sin, they're covenant breakers. Men and women, boys and girls in sin, break their promises. They break their covenants. They break their trust. They break their pacts with one another. Paul uses that term in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of the world in sin. He uses a word that the modern translations, unfortunately, do not translate it covenant breaker. But actually it is. Man in sin is a covenant breaker. Uh, one of the problems with that perverse is that the Greek term for covenant is usually diatheka. And the word diatheka um, has the idea uh, that, that it's a translation. It's not really the translation of the Hebrew berith, which means covenant. And it, it, it really is used because the alternate word that actually does mean covenant would be uh, syntheka. And so instead of dia which is a word that would mean through, it would be sin as, as, the, as the prefix. And that word sin would have the idea of together, together. A synagogue is where they gather together in worship. Uh, sympathy, uh, that's not a good word. Uh, uh, the synoptic gospels, it's seeing together the same account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's a prefix that means together. And when you think of God entering into a covenant with humanity, you don't want to think of together because that sounds more like a contract, negotiating parties, man is God's equal. No, nothing like that. So the Bible prefers to speak of the covenant in terms of a different word. It uses diatheka, 
which would speak more of God sovereignly imposing a covenant rather than a deal that's bargained out between equals. So, but yet in, in, in Romans, it's syntheka. That's the word. Man is a breaker of covenant. He's a breaker of his promises, his commitments, his treaties. And Hosea could be speaking about humanity, like humanity in general, covenant breakers. So this is a people who have broken their, the, the covenant. But there's also another thing that the passage tells us in its context is that what's following that statement, like Adam, they tra- or like mankind, or like Adam in the garden, you know, again, those are alternatives that possibly could be, they transgressed the covenant. It goes on to say, there, they dealt faithlessly with him. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. So it's speaking of a place, it would seem, more than a person. It's something that happened there. Now, we don't really know where Adam was. A lot of places in the Bible they talk about, we don't know where it was. We know Gilead was over the Jordan. It was Transjordan. It's the eastern uh, part of the inheritance of Jordan. Bomb and Gilead. It's really, you had to cross the Jordan to get to Gilead to get that bomb that was um, used for healing. Um, so it's likely, it's referring to something that Hosea's um, readers or hearers would have known of a uh, situation that took place in maybe someplace near Gilead, that city of evildoers, that city that's tracked with blood. And in that place, there was a covenant violation that maybe they had a peace treaty with the people that dwelt there and they broke it. And that's what Hosea is calling attention to. But my point is, those latter um, understandings are well within the meaning of these words and are real life possibilities that would seem to would seem to show no necessity to go back to the garden to construct a covenant that the Bible nowhere else mentions. So contextually, it just doesn't seem like that's the right answer. Now, there's an article that I read some years ago by a Reformed theologian. His name is Benjamin Warfield. Warfield's well-known among Reformed writers. And Warfield treats this rather extensively. He goes into all the various options. And he comes up at the end and he says, well, if we err to say it's Adam, we err in good company. <laughs> and he goes and he speaks about all the previous people that have taken that interpretation. Well, okay, if you err on the matter, you're in good company. But there's no need to go there, is what I'm saying is that it could refer to mankind as covenant breakers or it could refer to an instance of covenant breakers happening in a given place that Hosea's readers know. And he, he says it's the place, it's there. This thing happened. Is there in the garden? Possible, not likely. Not likely that's what he's saying. Anyway, so there are other alternatives. So you don't build up a doctrine on a questionable passage. You need a little bit more information that scripture gives and what we did in our studies over the course of the first few weeks of July is we began to examine the book of Genesis in particular with respect to what a covenant is and again I really think it's inescapable to believe that covenant the covenants uh, take place when there's not conditions that require it and the conditions that require it seem to me to be a condition of distrust or conflict those are the conditions that seem to require a covenant coming into place. And why that would happen in the Garden of Eden, I don't know that Adam would distrust the word of God, need a covenant to enforce. I really, really mean it. If you, don't, if you, if you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you really, really, really will die. I think the word of God was sufficient to tell him what would happen, even though he had no understanding of what death was. Yet the reality of God's word would not engender distrust, but rather trust. So, yeah, of course, the devil came across and said, God can't be believed. But I don't think God would feel the necessity to tell um, a creature made in his image and likeness with whom he had a relationship of love and intimacy that uh, I really need to threaten you, above which I've already done, which is say, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die. And there are people that say that's covenant language, but it's not. It's not covenant language. It's language that expresses emphasis. God is emphasizing, you will surely die. It's not a covenant. It's not a vow. It's not an oath. Um, And there was, well, believe me, the construction that's there does not... 
imply covenant at all. And there's plenty of passages that have that same construction where God's not swearing an oath and he's not making a covenant. So those conditions need to be in place, which it was after the flood, which it was when Abraham said, how shall I know that this will be? He needs not only that God said you will have the land, you'll have a son from Sarah, not uh, Eliezer of Damascus, not uh, Hagar, your own son from your own wife. This in fact will be that God says in essence, if I don't keep my promises to you, I will be like the dead pieces of the animals that have been slain. And so God is basically doing what Hebrews says he does, but by two inescapable things with which it's impossible for God to lie through two absolutely certain things in which it's impossible for God to lie that is the promise and the oath God gives his promise and he swears uh, with an oath that he will keep his promise and and again when God swear since there's no one greater he swore by himself he didn't swear by something greater than he is he is the greatest he swears by himself and um, and it's to give assurance. It's to give strong assurance to those who have laid hold of the hope that is set before us. So it's for us. It's for the sake of our weakness of faith that God swears covenants in order to give us strong hope and strong assurance that his promises will be kept. Sinners need covenants. Sinners need covenants to repair a broken relationship that we have with God. Sinners need covenants that give us strong assurance that the promises God makes will in fact be kept. So that's what we saw from the book of Genesis, and now we're about to look at the book of Exodus. And I thought to take this uh, uh, a little bit step by step. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to do this with the whole Bible, but I want to give at least, get through the, 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 get through the Pentateuch, get through the five books of Moses at least, in order to understand what a covenant is. Now, Exodus has a lot to tell us about covenants, and I'm not going to tell you all about it this morning, not the entirety. Part of it because I have a lot of questions unanswered myself. And we're going to have open forum next week, and then we're going to meet again the following week, and by the time we get to the following week, some of the questions that are percolating in my mind, I'll have some sense of assurance, uh, certainty with respect to how to resolve them. But I do want to address these things. Uh, I can't say everything on the subject, but I can say at least some things, and here's what I'm going to endeavor to say. I'm going to tell you that the book of Exodus uh, confronts us with the fact that there are types of covenants. Not every covenant is the same. There are different types of covenants that we find in the Bible, just like there are different types of covenants that we find in the ancient world into which the Bible came. Okay? So that's the first thing we're going to look at, covenant types. And then we're going to say something about covenant continuity. I had a good discussion with this with Bob Monaco yesterday on the subject of, is the principle of continuity, like things continue from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Israel to, you know, through the generations and to us today, is there more continuity or discontinuity? Well, clearly there's both. It's just a question of not denying either. There's both. And we need to see that there is continuity in these covenant uh, commitments that God makes. And then we're going to look at covenant faithfulness, particularly how it's expressed in the name of Yahweh. And then we're going to look at covenant obligations. And we're going to get a little bit of a visit to Mount Sinai to see what those covenant obligations entail. So um, this will form something of, of the basis of things that follow in the book of Exodus. If we, we understand these things, I think we'll prepare, be prepared to understand uh, the things that follow when the, the book of the covenant is given, for instance, and uh, the term of covenant is used for the Ten Commandments, for instance, we'll have an understanding of why that is if we get this stuff down in our own minds today. Okay? So, you're with me? Ready to go? we got some work to do. So, let's begin with covenant types. Now, when we come from Genesis into Exodus, we have a radical jump that we make. And who can tell me why? Why would we come into what is essentially a different world when we come into Exodus from Genesis? Law was given. What's that? Law was given. Well, the law will be given, but I'm saying you, you move right into chapter 1 and you enter into a wholly different situation. What has happened between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1? 
Okay, yeah, people were enslaved. The garden is long past there, but we get into Exodus, and there's been. Yes, Phil? Well, thinking basically how family, now you've got this long nation. I'm thinking from Genesis, it's basically a family. But now you have this long nation. You're right, absolutely. But, But how did you move from just a family of 70 people that go down to Egypt to more than half a million men who are registered for the. For the fighting. Joseph is at the end, but now you're moving into Joseph and 70 people that go down to Egypt. And Joseph, again, again, he's you know buddies with Pharaoh, second in command. Whole situation changes. Certainly slavery ensues, a nation is founded, but four hundred years have passed. We all see the television shows and the movies that say Six days later. <laughs> so you move from, you, they show you what happened to get the person and the mess that he's in, what happened six days before, and then you come to six days later to get the thing resolved. Sometimes it's two years later. Sometimes it's ten years later. Imagine 400 years later. Fourth of July this year, what was America in terms of its founding? 16... Uh, 80, uh, 1786 so 300 and what 247 well we'll figure it out later we'll get a calculator to figure it out but the point is it's, it's well beyond America's existence 400 years think of what changed in the time from which colonial America and 21st century America now granted technologically probably things have not advanced quite as as fast as modern technology. But the reality is, things changed drastically. And part of the change was, as has been mentioned, you have a people who were 70 people, went down to Egypt, and now you have 600,000 men. When it numbers, registers the men for the battle, it's 600,000 men not including the women and the children. So you might be dealing with people coming out of Egypt, um, a million and a half people crossing the Red Sea. It's astounding. Uh, The growth of the population, again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Um, Abraham's seed was to be like the sand of the sea, the the stars of the heavens. God multiplied the nation. Something of a miraculous measure of growth that took place among the nation. But the point uh, of it is now uh, a new situation exists. You're not dealing just with a family, you're dealing with a, a nation, and you're dealing with a nation in slavery. They went down into Egypt, and Joseph was second in command. He, he'd risen to a place of authority in the nation. His family um, were regarded and well respected, and it's likely that. You see in Egypt the changing of the dynasties. There's, you know, you go to the Egypt wing of the Metropolitan Museum and you'll see all the different dynasties that ruled in ancient Egypt. And um, I don't remember the dynasty of the Hyksos, but there was a group called the Hyksos. They were Semitic nomadic people, the people that wandered from place to place like Abraham did. And they grew to the place where they actually came to settle in Egypt and they actually took over. At least in the north of of Egypt, that was an Egyptian dynasty. And it was governed by a Semitic people. And of course, Joseph and Jacob were Semites. And so it would have been kin to them, in a sense, that were in charge in Egypt. So when we come into Exodus and we read that there was a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, it might have just meant a little bit more than that he didn't know the person of Joseph. It might mean he just didn't know Joseph's family in terms of a relationship of kinship that the Hyksos did sustain to Jacob and his family. So a new king's in town. And a new king's in town who's different ethnically, perhaps racially. There were points in Egypt's history where the people from the south became the ones that took control. Um, the people of um, 
well, it's modern Sudan it would be, um, the biblical name is Cush, the Cushites. We were to mention, I think this morning, that uh, it, it, Moses being meek above all the people of the earth, he, he took a Cushite woman. Um, it says, uh, I think it says an Ethiopian woman in some of the translations. Uh, but um, it does say Cushite woman. <laughs> Jeremiah, where it says, says the, how the Ethiopian changes skin. That's actually Cushite. That's actually Cushite. That's the region to the south of Egypt. And there were people from the south that took control of the nation. So you had all these dynasties. Different racial people that took over. Different ethnicities that took over. And at this point, there was a pharaoh in town that put the, Egyptian, put the Israelites under harsh bondage. Became fearful of their growth. Thought there was a threat to his throne. And put them into slavery. And when you figure that has occurred... Where, what happened to the God of Israel in 400 years? When you get to the place where Moses is called to lead the nation out of bondage, and he comes and says, I come in the name of, first of all, Moses had to say, who's the God in whose name? I'm telling them that they're going to be redeemed. You know, what is your name? And he tells them, Yahweh, or I am. I tell them I am has sent you. And um, he goes back into the nation, and they don't know Yahweh. They don't know this I am any more than Pharaoh did. These were people that were accustomed to Egyptian gods. They were people that were under Egyptian influences. There was not the legacy of the, 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 the faith of Abraham. So you not only have not just an individual or a family, but you have a nation of 1.5 million people and 1.5 million people that may not even know Yahweh. I mean, you begin to see there's going to be some problems when we get these people out of Egypt. There's going to be some reasons that they are stiff neck and hard of heart. That there are people that need the circumcision of the heart. They're not, they're not believers. And then along with this 1.5 million people he brings out of Egypt, a lot of which are not are stiff of neck and hard of heart, there's that mixed multitude that's mentioned that they bring out of Egypt. So apparently there may have been Egyptians unhappy with the Egyptian slavery practices over the Israelites, or it could have been other enslaved people who weren't even descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they said, well, we're getting into this, this march that's leading, going out of Egypt. We're going with them. We're going with them. See, the mixed multitude of people, and all of them have their gods. And so it's a, it's a completely different situation. And because you have a different situation, I think what you have is a different type of covenant. Now, let me try to explain what I'm getting at here. And so when you look at the covenants that God made with Abraham, you look at the covenants that Abraham made with Abimelech and uh, Jacob made with Laban. Um, there's a sense in which those were covenants that were made um, that had very little in the way of um, stipulations, they call them. Very little in the way of, uh, here's the whole list of things that you have to do to be a, co- a, a partner in this covenant. In fact, God, God didn't enter into covenant with Abraham right away. There's no mention of a covenant in chapter 12 when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and led him first to Haran, to the north of Canaan, and then finally led him down into Canaan after the death of Terah. I believe that is what happened. He came down with Lot. And then there was, uh, he was a worshiper of Yahweh. He went down into Egypt, and God favored Abraham, right? God, in fact, when he looked to pass off Sarah as his sister rather than his wife, God brought plagues upon Egypt, just like he did later in Moses. He brought plagues upon Egypt, but didn't bring plagues upon Abraham for lying. God, God had a relationship with Abraham where Abraham is said to be his friend. He's the friend of God. Shall I keep from Abraham that which I'm about to do? See, he's my friend. He has this relationship with, with Abraham. Abraham has followed him. Abraham has obeyed him. Abraham has believed him. Even when, in chapter 15, a covenant is actually cut or enacted, it says there that Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him for righteousness. Abraham was a believer. Abraham trusted Yahweh. Abraham followed Yahweh. Abraham knew Yahweh. Abraham worshipped Yahweh. 
He set up altars in the name of the Lord. He, um, so you have a different kind of covenant that's there. It's, it's more of the sort of thing that friends would make with friends or you know, where there's maybe some things that need to be further defined or assurances given. It's more of the sort of thing that would be called a parody covenant. And I know to say that with God entering into any kind of relationship as a, as, as a peer uh, is, would sound blasphemous, but, but God condescends to his people. He condescends in his mercy and in his love. And he enters into this relationship that he establishes. He enters into freely. And he, and he does it with a believer. He does it with someone who's followed him. He does it with someone who's obeyed him. He's done it with someone who worships him. But now he's coming to a nation that doesn't know him. He's coming to a nation in bondage in Egypt under the oversight of a pagan emperor named Pharaoh. And for God to take this people into covenant with himself, it has to be on something of a different basis. It has to be something of a different covenant type. Now in the ancient world, you had those things that are like parody covenants. People that just, there's a land problem. There's little negotiations here. That need, things need to be ironed out. There's, there's some tension. There's some quarreling. There's some distrust. Let's settle the matter by means of a covenant. But actually, in the ancient world, there's another kind of covenant. It was called the suzerainty covenant. And um, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to spell it correctly. Suzerain. And you see the idea of a reign in there? A suzerain was a king who conquered peoples and became like the mega king. (laughs) He's the big king. Uh, The emperor who subdues a lot of other countries, subdues a lot of other kings under him. And when you had Egypt as an empire, or Assyria as an empire, or even the Hittites as an empire, or other empires of the ancient world, when they went on a conquering spree, and they conquered this people group, and that people group, and that people group, they would enter into a covenant with an overlord making the weaker party that's been conquered a vassal under him. So they'd be taken from whatever other suzerain or kingdom that got defeated that maybe they were under, and they became a vassal to the the top guy in town. And it's that kind of covenant, we have plenty of them that have been unearthed through archaeology in the ancient world, that when you begin to read the, Dec- the, the Pentateuch, and you get particularly to Deuteronomy, you see that almost everything that comprises one of these ancient suzerain covenants is replicated in Deuteronomy. The same kind of arrangement. God is the suzerain. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's the one with full rights of dominion. And he demonstrates that by coming down into Egypt, where Israel, a million and a half people, are subject to a pagan, idol-worshipping dictator who puts them into hard, hard bondage, <coughs> tyrannical uh, rule. And he frees the slaves. He brings the captives out. He takes them, chapter 19 of Exodus says, as as eagle's wings unto himself. He went down into Egypt, into the house of bondage, the house of slavery. Took them out of the fiery furnace into which they had been kept. All that imagery is used in the books of the law. And says, this is what I've done for you. And that's how these covenants would begin. The God would say, look at what I've done for you. Or the king would say, look what I've done for you. And he'd address the people, even though he conquered them militarily. These ancient kings would speak, I'm, I'm your father. I'm your shepherd. Kings would be shepherds in the ancient world. We, we think the Lord is my shepherd. And we think of the pastoral scene where the with the, the shepherd and sheep. But actually kings would use that language. When we say the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is our, our, our king who, who shepherds us. He leads us. Um, the kings would be the shepherds of the people. Um, when Moses was about to die, uh, God says, uh, choose another man who would shepherd my people. Leader. Leader. One who led them. 
as a king will lead his people. And so it would always be in languages of love, but also, this is what I've done for you. And this is my, this, I will protect you. Uh, if, if somebody seeks to invade you, I will come and defend you. Uh, all these things that God says he will do for his people in the midst of their conquests over these other nations, God is expressing that's who he is. He's greater than Pharaoh. He's greater than all the kings of the earth. And he's to be, and, and so allegiance is to be given to him. Even as you formally gave allegiance to the Egyptian, Pharaoh. Even as you formally gave allegiance to those who dominated you. Now you're in a relationship with me where I'm the one who's the king. And again, the whole picture of the Old Testament of how Yahweh asserts his rights as king over his people. When they wanted a king like the other nations had, the Lord said to Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. I'm to be king over Israel. I'm to be the suzerain. Look what I've done for them. I brought them out of bondage. I brought them into freedom. I brought them to a land full with milk and honey. And so this becomes the type of covenant that God enters into with the nation of Israel. And we're going to see it as we move on. The aspects of a suzerainty covenant. Even the Ten Commandments come in the form of that type of covenantal arrangement that we'll see. Okay? Any questions about that? See the, so there's different types of covenant that existed in the ancient world. And the Bible shows us different relationships with different conditions where God enters into covenant with people that parallels things well known in their world. God doesn't come with some new category they had no idea about. You know, we don't have much of an idea about covenants. We, we deal with contracts today. Not so much covenants, but in the Bible, that's how the world, the world ran. And so God enters into a covenant now with a nation with, who were in bondage to another king who didn't know him who, after his redemption out of Egypt, they're going to have a lot of problems with obedience, and all that seems to get anticipated in terms of this new relationship God enters in to with covenant with the nation. Yes, Tim. Uh, I was just thinking of, of God's mercy in, in the whole realm of this, you know, this relationship that he has in bringing him, Israel out of, mm-hmm. out of uh, bondage. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, and that brings us to the fact that there's this continuity that exists with this covenant arrangement that God's going to enter into, and that which came before. Because God notes, look at it in chapter, chapter 2 of Exodus. Let's look at some texts now. I'm alluding to texts, but now let's look at some of them. Uh, verse uh, 23 during the days those many days the king of Egypt died the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew and God knew He knew their bitterness of bondage. He knew the groanings of their heart. He knew the difficulties they were under, the oppressions that they were experiencing. And God just couldn't leave that situation to continue because God had made a commitment to Abraham. God had made a commitment to Isaac. God had made a commitment to Jacob. And these were their descendants. These were the ones who were the heir of the covenant Of course, you remember back when God made the original covenant with Abraham, he told of these very conditions that we find the people of Israel were in. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. And the Lord said to Abraham, verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years later, Exodus tells the story. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, the plagues, death of the firstborn, the death of the armies in the Red Sea. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Again, God promised Abraham a land. He promised the land that was already occupied. The Canaanites filled the land. And God was not going to supplant the Canaanites while there was still opportunity for mercy even to be given to them. The judgment was not to come to them until their iniquity had become full. When they filled up the full measure of their iniquity, then God brought the judgment of displacement of the, the conquest of the Israelites and the expelling of the Canaanite nations. Not that they did a very good job of it. They didn't. They never completely did what they were charged to do. But nonetheless, that was God tells what the plan is. They're going down into a land that's not theirs. They're going to be there for 400 years. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to be held in captivity. And then I'm going to bring them out. And that's what the Exodus story is about. It's a continuation. It's not something new. It's something that's based upon the former promises of God. It's based upon the former story God had already told Abraham would unfold in the life of the nation and the life of um, his descendants. Now, this continuity not only is a continuity of the story. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Can you explain the difference between covenant? as we're looking at with Abraham here Mm -hmm. and relationship because we've mentioned relationship of God to his people over over this this uh, the great difference between Genesis and Exodus and I'm getting a little confused as to when you're referring to a relationship with God and his people and then a covenant so back to Abraham it's clear there's a covenant you know a promise a promise given Mm -hmm. And then the relationship of the people changes, but I'm not sure I'm grasping where you're headed with covenant in Exodus as opposed to relationship in Exodus. Well, the relationship that Abraham had with God was established before a covenant was actually made. We don't read about a covenant until chapter 15. But Abraham is called out of the Ur of the Chaldees in chapter 12. Mm -hmm. And Abraham obeys and he follows the Lord. It was a relationship by faith. And even in chapter 15, he believes God. It's reckoned to him for righteousness. It's not until Abraham says, look at chapter 15 of Exodus. In verse 5, we read of chapter 15, He brought him, that is Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. So the matter of the promised seed, he believed. But now he moves on and says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now there's the promise again of the land. Now there's a promise of the land before. But now in conjunction with the promise of the seed, there's also the promise of the land. I will give you this land to possess. And up to this point, Abraham doesn't own a stick of it. He's been going around in tents from place to place, going through the length of the land. In Shechem, he sets up an altar. He goes down into Egypt. You read the previous sections and you see that he wandered through the land and he's still a stranger. He's not an owner. He's not the lord of the place. Um, and I don't know why it was, but it's at this point that Abraham says, O Lord God, O Sovereign God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How shall I know that I shall possess it? And it's at that point where he's asking, how shall I know that I shall possess it, that God then tells him to take the heifer and the female goat and the ram and all the rest and to cut him in pieces and then he puts him into a sleep 
and he sees this vision of the torch going through the pieces and it's at that point we read for the first time um, yeah there it is in verse 18 on that day on that day Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham on that day he made a covenant with Abraham and the day when he went through the pieces he made a covenant with Abraham that was the, the ceremony that solemnized the covenant the, the vision of God going through the pieces saying in essence if I don't keep my promise to you my son may I be like these pieces you know, God could sooner perish God could sooner die God could soon be severed you can sooner eviscerate God then his promise will not be kept that's what God did and it's on that day he made the covenant with this covenant ritual saying to your offspring I give this land and then he gives the dimensions of the land from the river of Egypt the Nile to the great river Euphrates the land of the Canaanites and going on and on and on but the iniquity of the Amorites of the, of the had not yet become full so this is 400 years in the future when the people will be brought out of bondage but the covenant was made that the land would be given and when you come into Exodus when God comes and makes this land that makes this covenant with the nation or continues the covenant with the nation or invites them to enter into the to the blessings of the covenant um, it's a continuation of what was begun in Abraham so the relationship again was always um, in other words we get back to the theology of the covenants we find in the in the Westminster Confession and the London Confession um, and there it says that the distance between God and man is so great now let me read you that language but some, it's a good question what you asked relationship versus covenant well again the theology of covenant as we find it in reformed tradition it says this it says the distance between God and man I'm sorry God and the creature is so great that all the reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part by which he's been pleased to express by way of covenant so they make almost relationship with God and covenant to be one you can't have a relationship with God where a covenant doesn't exist and I, I don't know how covenant solves the problem of this great distance between God and man the cre- creature creator distinction always exists at every point but God makes man in his image and his likeness not because he needed us and it seems to me being made in God's image and likeness provides a basis for relationship right, right there we're God's image we're God's likeness God blessed them and said be fruitful multiply fill the earth I think in creation itself who and what we are is image of God is what accounts for a relationship of us and God where we can have a relationship with God um, so I don't think covenant is necessary for relationship but sometimes in relationship we wonder will you be true to your promise that's what Abraham is saying I got the promise but man I got everything around me that says otherwise <laughs> can you give me something to kind of bolster my assurance and that's what covenant does it bolsters the assurance so that you have not just one thing God promised me and he promised it and that should settle it now he promised it and swore an oath about it and so it adds an extra layer of might say authenticity again God can't lie in either aspect of promise or oath but the covenant takes it a step further and so it gives to Abraham that sense that this is a relationship I have with God when these promises are given I can take it to the bank I can rest my soul in the fact that God can sooner cease to be than I will that my descendants will not receive what he's promised them so I, again it, it works something along those lines but I don't think covenant is essential to relationship it's something that's added to the relationship for the purposes of um, assurance to the creature Yes. I was thinking about Daniel, Pastor. I'm sorry? Daniel. Daniel? Daniel. Yeah, because actually he he believed what God what he said do after eighty years captivated by Babylon. So but he had a relationship mm-hmm. with God really, really uh, deep. Yes. Yeah. Praying all the time. Three yeah. times. How many times he was praying? 
Yeah, I think three times a day, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you see, what God said with respect to the Babylonian captivity and the return, that had to do, again, with the covenant relationship he had with Israel, defined by Deuteronomy chapter 28. We haven't gotten there yet to Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy, you have the curses of the covenant. And you see, since the central thing we're going to look at, we're maybe not going to do it this morning, I was hoping to, with respect to covenant faithfulness, we'll get there, is that the focus of the Abrahamic covenant, again, is the land. It's the land. It's only when he got to the point of the land does Abraham say, how shall I know that this will be so? And then God says, um, you know, the, the, the descendancy as much as the stars of the heavens didn't cause as much a problem as the fact that this land that's owned by the inhabitants of the land that that's going to be mine and that's going to be my descendants you know, and, and even though God promised it we want something a little bit it, it was hard for the Israelites to believe even when they, knew, when they saw God did to, 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 to the Egyptians and the plagues that he brought and the opening of the sea and the manna that came from heaven and all of the rest and yet they send the spies up into the land there are giants and were grasshoppers before them <laughs> there was something about the fact that you have hostile people occupying the land I guess you and I would probably think, yeah, man, I don't know how this is going to work. I hear, Lord, you're promising this to me, but I really got a problem with it. But you see, it was this land grant that becomes the central reason that the covenant is given, promising the land grant to them, which is why when you come to the curses of the covenant in chapter 28, if you don't keep my hear my voice and keep my words... The curses of the covenant will come upon you. And what was the final curse of the covenant? Exile. Exile. Just what Daniel and the other Israelites experienced when the Babylonians took them away. But even at the end of there it says, And if even in exile you cry unto me, like they did in Egypt, like they would, like Daniel does in Babylon, God will hear their cries and the promise of restoration is also given. So what happens in the history of the nation is in accordance with this suzerain covenant that God enters into with them. And it does have as its primary focus the land. Because even when you think about Abraham, the land is promised to this great progeny. Many as the stars of the heavens. And through the possession of the land, then the people were to be a blessing to the other nations. Blessing, I will bless you, and you will be, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in a real sense, this matter of the covenant that had to do with the land is really God's way of restoring what creation anticipated, which was image bearers of God who believed in God and served God and loved God and submitted to God, would dwell upon the earth as his images spreading the knowledge of him through the earth. I mean, in an unfallen state, that's what Adam should have done. And he didn't. He rebelled. And what happened? He he lost the land. He lost Eden. He became an exile. (laughs) Israel was to have the land in obedience. They didn't obey. And they were cast out. And, you know, that's what you begin to see with reference to the covenant faithfulness of God he's faithful not only to the promises to give the land but he's faithful to the to the curse upon disobedience to his promises because again we're going to see that this is uh, this is a covenant that must be kept it's a covenant that must be kept yes I know we're running late so we can continue yeah. if you need mm-hmm. to but um so in Exodus 2 Exodus, there are different types. So we have a, a 
suzerain covenant, which is a different type of a covenant than the one with the one in Genesis, but although it's this continuing the covenant with yeah. Abraham, but now you're calling yeah. it a suzerain covenant. Well, so I'm so, here, different, but it's the same covenant. I'm saying there's continuity and discontinuity. Okay. I'm saying there's a new situation. Okay. It's no longer family. Okay. A family of believers who are following the Lord. Okay. It's now a nation okay, that comprises unbelievers, idol worshippers, a mixed multitude. Oh, go ahead. But it's still the same covenant. It's decision. based upon the covenant with Abraham. Okay. God remembers his covenant with Abraham. But then when he comes to Mount Sinai, he then says... Chapter 19. I was hoping to end here, but we didn't get that far. <laughs> in 19, this is where I want to end up, but maybe this will help to conceptualize the point for you. Is now, when it comes to chapter 19, um, thus, in verse 3, the Lord called to him, that is Moses, out of the mountain, saying, You shall see this to the house of Jacob. And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now therefore, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So this is a covenant that had to be kept. Suzerain covenants put obligations, responsibilities. You see, that's where it was going to end up. In covenant obligations. It gave a list of stipulations. Now that you're in this relationship with me, this is what you must do. And that's why the Ten Commandments become the, the testimony. It becomes that which is put into the Ark of the Covenant. Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. And you have the Book of the Covenant that is the laws that govern their life in the land. You've got to hear my voice, God says, and you have to keep my covenant. And the interesting thing about the keeping of the covenant is that the keeping of the covenant is the same word that's used of Adam's responsibility to keep the garden. Same word. He was to serve and keep in the garden. And so Israel was to keep the covenant. They were to guard it from defilement and disobedience and covenant breaking. But you see the history of the thing becomes they broke the covenant. They didn't keep the covenant. They broke the covenant. Which is why Jeremiah says, A new covenant I make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, which by covenant they broke. They broke the covenant. They didn't keep the covenant. This is a covenant that had to be kept. Now, there was nothing when God entered into covenant with Abraham that says, Now, here's something you have to keep it. It's almost like it progresses and adds layers. It does add layers. This, again, the situation changes. And, and, and because you're dealing now not with a family of believers that are following the Lord in tents and, and trusting Him for the promises, you're dealing with this 1.5 million people accustomed to Egypt, accustomed to idolatry, accustomed to not trust and follow the Lord. And there are people who are joined by a mixed multitude of who knows who they were and where they came from and what their background was. And so now God enters into this kind of relationship where there's lots of stipulations, lots of layers, as you say, added on to the original relationship so that we do have this continuity, but we also have the discontinuity. So I hope you see that. There's continuity and yet there's obligations that you don't see with Abraham. Now Abraham had obligations out of a relationship, but now they have obligations out of a covenant. So there's a new layer of obligations that now is because God's entered into covenant with them. Not, the, not exactly the same kind of covenant he had with, he, with, 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 um, with Abraham. I think that's more like the other kinds of covenants you see in Genesis. This is a new kind of covenant. Not new to the ancient world, but new in terms of God's relationship with the descendants of Abraham. That he enters into this covenant that is very like the sort of things that conquered, conquering nations would enter into the peoples that they conquered. Because God conquered them when he overcame the Egyptians and brought them out of Egyptian bondage and released them from that kind of horrid slavery, but brought them into a relationship with him that they might serve him and worship him. There's lots more we can say about this. It'll have to wait till later. Get the covenant faithfulness in the name as well. God willing, next week. I hope this has been helpful to some extent. I know, again, some of this is confusing, but we're looking to spend some time here so that when we come to the end of all this, some of those, that confusion, maybe it'll begin to, to dissipate. Because uh, 
I think if we just follow the the biblical testimony, uh, it will be more clear than unclear when we come to the end of this. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful once again for your word. You've not given your word to confound us or to confuse us, but your word is clear. And we're thankful, though, there's so many things in Scripture we can't really fathom or uh, give answers to for many reasons. Yet, Lord, what we can see, we pray we would be able to, uh, by faith, hold on to and enter into and, and begin to see more and more what a great God you are. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And we're thankful that we are your worshipers. We pray your blessing would be with us as we greet one another this morning, as we have a time of refreshment and fellowship. We pray you'd bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. Grant us to see more and more of your beauty and your love and your goodness and your gracious provisions to us in our Lord Jesus as we ask these things in his name. Amen. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it has been so helpful.